Welcome to another Art of Relationships podcast. We are grateful for listeners like you. Let's get right into it. Hey, welcome back. We are here for another awesome episode of the Art of Relationships podcast brought to you by Biola University and the Center for Marriage and Relationships. It's brought to you by In-N-Out and Chick-fil-A and... Well, it's really not. No, but it's you know not. What? No, no, but, but, but we love those But two. if you're from in and out in Chick-fil-A and you'd like to sponsor this podcast, we're not going to say no. No, the reason I said that, too, is Lisa, because we have done some work with both of those organizations. And just recently, we got to speak uh, with some in and out executives and owners. And Oh, that was fabulous uh, in Hawaii last summer. Yeah, so we talked about marriage and relationships and how to have uh, healthy relationships and in and out asked us to come and what an awesome thing that was and in fact if you want to go yeah if you want to go check out our podcast with the owner of in in and out her name is Lindsay Snyder we've done a couple of podcasts with not just Lindsay but even with her husband Sean and based on that they said come on out talk to our people and so we are sponsored in some ways by I don't think you could actually say that. <laughs> we <laughs> we love that organization, man. They they uh, they do some amazing things, and they've even have a partnership with Biola University in many yeah, respects. Been, so been very great. Hey, uh, we've been talking about sexuality. We've been talking about cultural views of sexuality. Uh, we've been talking about where we're at today, and three different views, right? Yeah, that was our first podcast with our really special guest, um, New Testament theologian and expert all around. Dr. John Lindy. Uh, he's not only a, a very renowned professor here at Biola University at Talbot School of Theology, but he's our friend. He and his wife, Pam, are very dear friends, and they actually team teach a class with Chris and me called Christian Perspectives on Marriage and Relationships. And we've had over 1,200 students go through that class over the last, I don't know, like 12 years? Yeah, 10 years. We usually have about an average of 200, 150 in there at any given time. I think the first time we had four or 500 in there. Incredible. It's a great class. John, um, I have probably been one of the premier, I think, mentors in your life. I think I think most of what you've learned, I, I know you have said it comes from me. And I, I, don't, I don't expect you to acknowledge that right now. I can tell by your look that you feel... You know, I'm just embarrassed to even sometimes sit here. But, John, as I have taught you all of these things, uh, you have really expanded. You've gone even beyond what I initially poured into you. Uh, congratulations on such fine work. Thank you, Chris, for, for recognizing that. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, thank you for also recognizing that. John, uh, uh, kidding, not really aside, uh, but it's kind of aside. John, you kind of are writing in this area as well. So, so last podcast, we talked about these views, and, and you present a very fascinating idea of a biblical perspective on sexuality and marriage. And I know you're going to put that out here soon. It's some of your research. We look forward to sharing that with our listeners. I'll tell you, as soon as you publish this material, would you let us know? And we're going to have you on here, and we're going to go through it one more time. Does that sound good? Sounds great. All right. So, John, uh, where are you leading in your research? What, do you, what are some of the cool things that you have found? I, and I've, we've got to have you start with your anniversary story. Oh, okay. When you, yeah, tell, tell our listeners that story about your anniversary, because it's just awesome. Well, my wife and I, we've now been married 39 years, but at the time, I 
think it was, I think it was either 20 or 25. And uh, Pam's from Seattle. And so we were up there at the, uh, at the beginning of August. Our, our anniversary is in August. And um, it was our anniversary. And I, and I thought, boy, I, I'd, better, I'd better get her something nice. Uh, I'm not really good with jewelry. And so I thought, if I miss this. So I went to Jared uh, and I... And I asked, that's, that's a diamond store for all you people that you don't know. You need to anything. introduce Chris to your friend, Jared. <laughs> that would be awesome. Lisa, please. That, I've known Jared since, well, anyway, as a child. But keep going, John, with meeting Jared. So I went into this uh, jewelry store and I told the lady, I, I want an anniversary band. So she took me over to the counter and showed me a, a variety of them. And I kind of had my, my, uh, price limit. And I looked and found one that fits sort of within that. And I said, I'll take that one. So she said, would you like me to wrap it up for you? And I said, oh yeah, that'd be great. So she took it over to uh, the counter and began doing her little frilly thing there. And I was just standing back with my arms crossed, thinking about what else I I needed to do. And as she was bent over the package, uh, she said, so this is an anniversary band. And I said, yeah, it is. And she's continuing to look down and and work. And she says, how many? I said, well, uh, 25. She stopped and slowly looked up at me. And she said, what did you say? I said, 25 years. She said, I don't know anybody who's been married 25 years. All my friends' parents are divorced. My parents are divorced. Some of my own friends are divorced. And then she said something that I was not prepared for. She said, what's the secret? And I really didn't do well. I kind of fumbled around and just kind of, I don't even remember what I said, but I know I didn't do a very good job. So fast forward another five years, and now I'm back down here in Southern California, and it's our 30th. And uh, I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm going to get something that would go with those, uh, with, with that ring. So I, I decided I'd go and get, I think it was some earrings. You are an amazingly good husband. I wish you would stop talking right now. Well, these are the only two highlights I have. Well, Chris, I so. Are you taking notes over there? You're making it hard for the rest of us. Excuse John. me, I'm getting some pen and paper, so Please Chris should be stop. taking notes. All right, continue. <laughs> I'll deal with the shame in a little bit here. So I go to this another Jared store, but now in Southern California, not in Seattle. Told the lady what I wanted, and she showed me some earrings, and I said, yeah, we'll take those. So she um, started going over to the counter, and as we're going, she said, so uh, these are for your anniversary. And I said, yes, it is. And we got to the counter, and she said, how many years? And I said, 30. She didn't even pause. She turned to me, looked at me just with a, with a very s- serious face. She said the very same thing. What's the secret? And what this... Well, I was, I was more prepared for it this time, and so I was able to do a better job of, of testifying to the work of God's grace in my relationship. But what this told me is that it doesn't matter who you are, that humans desire the kind of relationship that Scripture actually describes. What Scripture describes is the one flesh union the culture describes as the soulmate. Uh, they may not necessarily be the same thing, but at least they overlap in terms of the concept. Mm, so soulmate for them can mean about the same thing as it can for the Christian who says, 
I'm doing this in a way that is going to ultimately bring glory to God, and I'm committed to this person. So what commitment is and grace and its hard work. So that led you, John, uh, right around that time. You began teaching in our classes. You've been r- writing and working on this idea. So what is it? What What is the difference? What w- You know, if you kind of expanded what you told the ladies there at the store that sold you that wonderful jewelry who were just shocked that you've been together, you know, for what is, you know, at that time, just 30 years, what, what, what'd you tell them or, or what would you say to them if, if they were listening to this podcast? Well, fundamentally, it's going to be the grace of God. Uh, fundamentally, it's, it's the grace of God that empowers the kind of relationship that we're talking about here. So that's what we really need to talk about today. What we're talking about is how does the one flesh union actually come about? So when you start, to talk, where, do, where do you even start to unpack that? Where do you go to first? Uh, I, I know. I, let's start with this. What does one flesh mean? Where does that come from? I don't get it. one flesh. That means sex. What? What is? Where is all? What does that mean? If I'm not, I don't know, biblically literate. Well, it comes from Genesis and in, in the description of of what's going to happen between a man and a woman, where these two individuals come together, and they become joined together. They 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 cleave together to the to use the old King James version. To, to actually become one entity. Now, obviously, they never stop being two separate bodies, but the relationship becomes so intimate, uh, epitomized in sexuality, where the two bodies are actually joined together. But that's simply a, f- a physical declaration of what's really happening in all areas of your life. So we're, we're really talking about a permanent, uh, intimate enduring, thriving relationship that brings about a oneness that's mysterious. Ooh, man, that's a good definition for marriage. A permanent, intimate, uh, I've already maybe mis- may have hit replay, but what is it, John? Uh, one more time. I mean, that's a great I'm not definition. not sure I can say it <laughs> and, and I think it's so important that, that we're saying that it's permanent, it's intimate. It thrives. Between, it, pardon me? It thrives. It thrives, and it's between one man and one woman in in the the joining together of marriage that that's genesis right there the genesis account of one flesh right very good so talk a little bit about human nature what is it in our human nature that that is driving this that makes us want this one flesh i think it's really important to think about um what is the impact of us being embodied spirits so we all have bodies, but we also have this non-physical aspect of who we are. I'm, I'm going to call the, the, the physical the physical, and I'm going to call the non-physical the personal. I don't know what else we could call it. We could call it several different things. But we're, we are spirits that are embodied, and therefore, when we think about intimacy, both of those things have to be taken into account. When we, when we experience... Uh, physical intimacy, we're, 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 we're doing so in a variety of ways, whether it's eye contact, whether it's speaking, whether it's physical touch. All of these things are physical, and if we're going to express personal intimacy, it has to go through the physical. We can't just t- telepathically 
communicate with each other that we have certain feelings. We have to communicate it, whether it's going to be verbal or nonverbal, it's going to have to be physical. So that's a, a, a really important place to start so that you realize these two things are together and the physical is the vehicle through which the personal is actually communicated. And, and then I assume, John, at this point, it also has to be received as such, right? I mean, in other words, let's say in a, in a horrible situation, somebody, you know, is coming out of surgery or they're, you know, unconscious, I, I, I can reach down and touch and talk. But, but if they don't receive it and hear it, there's something in, to, in the both touching of that extends my personhood, but it then has an impact on their personhood, right? They, they're they different because of it. I, that's what psychologists, by the way, are really fascinated with is that no single interaction between two people leaves each of you the same. Every time we have an interaction with somebody, something changes in our brain. Something happens. In, the more intimate, the more emotional, emotional, the more sexual, the more physical, the greater the transformative effect on the individual's brains and on our souls, our minds. So that's a cool part. So this is pretty profound. I love what you just said, Chris. You were talking about that aspect of intimacy. And John, you talked about what are some of the characteristics of intimacy? Like when we're talking about that, what what kind of qualities or characteristics are we, are you talking about? Let me first of all summarize intimacy, and this is reductionistic. I, I'm not a I'm not a professional uh, psychologist or counselor like 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 you guys are, but um, I think you can summarize intimacy between two humans according to three very very fundamental realities. One is commitment. One is commitment to the other. That the person is 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 really committed to being there, to to, to remaining in the relationship, and obviously as as, as biblical commitment goes, it ends up being permanent if we're talking about marriage. But then you also have trustworthiness. In other words, this person is going to actually follow through on the commitment. And then the third is trust, that you are actually trusting that that person is trustworthy in the commitment that 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 person has made. So when you have those three things together, I think you have the characteristics of, of, of intimacy human uh, intimacy across the board. So what qualities that foster intimacy are things like kindness, things like patience, things like empathy, things like forgiveness, for things like uh, lightheartedness and empathy. These are the kind of characteristics, the qualities that then are fostering the kinds of trustworthiness that other people learn to trust and that commitment then is just sort of binding all of that together. When you, when you think about that, then now those qualities and those commitments and those aspects of our, of our relationship are always going to be communicated physically to each other, whether it's, again, eye contact, conversation, touch, whatever. Physically, we're communicating those things, but we realize then when we start talking about sexuality, that you start divorcing those attributes and those qualities from the sex act, there's nothing that's actually being communicated. And that's why you eventually have such emptiness. Mm. Uh, So, Don, when there is a sex act without the three things, commitment, 
trustworthiness or trust, you really are left with nothing more than a physical act. And that could be an answer to why the hookup culture has none of those. I mean, in fact, it has the opposite exactly. of commitment. It has the opposite of trustworthiness. It has the opposite of trust. It has none of those. That's exactly right. Can you talk a little bit more about that, Joe? Well, when you when you try to make sex completely impersonal, completely meaningless, now you've got you've got physical contact that we are all geared, and you as a psychologist, Chris, knows this, to to experience the the connection between two different individuals that now is is being uh, demonstrated in in both in physical and in hormonal ways. And yet, if there's no commitment, if there's no trustworthiness, if there's no trust, it eventually does what you were talking about in our last uh, podcast, and that is that numbing, that sort of callousing that happens because nothing is actually happening. So anytime you start trying to base a relationship, and especially a marriage, on the sexual, it's going to eventually cave in because it's only going to be as meaningful as the experience of these deeper personal qualities. And if that's not there, eventually it'll become absolutely painful. So you're saying that that hookup culture, there, there really is a complete lack of those three qualities that you just talked about. In the hookup culture, there is no commitment. There is no trustworthiness. There is no trust. That's right. And, and it, well, commitment, real quickly, uh, John, uh, take it back. Somebody might go, oh, well, I... I Maybe they don't understand. I mean, that's a, a fairly robust word. I mean, it, it, to base everything on that one word. So the word commitment, g- give me what what does that mean in all of its deepness? Like, I think, okay, I'm committed to the Los Angeles Dodgers, right? I really am. I'm committed. I, I like to watch them. I, I'll turn on games. I, I'm committed to the Denver Broncos, right? Um, it, it, now, that means if someone says, oh, what's the best team? I, I'm, it's the Denver Broncos. What's the best MLB team? I said Los Angeles. I'm committed. That's not what you're talking. It's it's an element of what you're talking about. And so commitment, though, I think a lot of people in the modern, maybe even listeners and some of our friends out there, maybe some of the world that maybe doesn't understand that it's actually a pretty profound word. Commitment is it's not just that I identify with you. I, I like you. I identify with you. I will follow you in good times and bad. Uh, I guess the problem is I used to be committed to the Lakers and then they made some really dumb moves in my opinion. And all of a sudden my commitment went, you know what? Uh, maybe I'm not committed to the NBA anymore. I, uh, whatever. And I can walk away. We're talking something that is both. And I, I identify with, I connect with, but in my heart of hearts, there is nothing that can separate me from them. Is that is that what you mean by commitment? That this is long term. Are we talking about length of time, or even more than that? Is it not only will I stay there, but there will be I will do everything in my power, and there will be nothing that will separate us. Neither, and I maybe. Maybe, John, I guess what I'm getting at is this what we say at our vows. In our vows that we take at our wedding, 
that's commitment, isn't it? They're saying if you're in sickness or in health, if you're in good times or you're in bad times. Yeah. And again, the, the, the probably the Dodgers, Broncos, Lakers, they don't always fulfill that. And, and if it's bad and I don't like it, I can get out of that. But I can't in this idea of commitment. Is that right? I think I think you're hitting it right on the head, Chris. When you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, you see that humanity is created in the image of God, that, that we as humans in some mysterious and multiple ways display who God is. Obviously, we're not God, but we are stamped with his character. Now, think about who God is according to the biblical teaching. The biblical teaching is that he's triune. That means he's multiple personal. He actually has different persons within the one Godhead. And so when you think about how we display that, we display that in personal, interpersonal ways. Because God is infinitely and eternally interacting with itself, with himself in these, in these personal relationships. So if we are then reflecting who God is in the marriage relationship, it has to be permanent because God is eternal. And those relationships between the Father, Son, and the Spirit, they're not ending. So when you ask what is biblical commitment in the marriage, we're talking about the vows and we're talking about a commitment to be with that person to the very end. Now, it is true in our broken world uh, that there are biblical exceptions for a marriage to uh, actually end. Sure, adultery yeah. uh, in particular. Yeah. So that is, that is uh, sort of a condescension to the reality that we are marrying people that could absolutely fail. Um, but in terms of the ideal, when we talk about commitment, we're talking about a human relationship that is actually beginning to reflect the nature of the relationship in the God. Yeah, thanks for taking that little aside there, because I think I think we misunderstand sometimes the the importance of this. We hear it every wedding we attend. You know, sickness and health, rich or poor, till death do us part. And I think we all say, oh, yeah, great. But most of us go, yeah, oh, they don't put in the vow until you no longer make me happy. <laughs> right? They don't say that. It, it, it It's not there. So... I love that. Those three components, John, that makes up for intimacy. What, what do you got for us? Or Lisa, what do you got a question first? Go ahead. Well, well you, you, you talked about in our last podcast, those three cultural um, options for sexuality and relationships. And one we just talked about hookup culture. The second one you talked about was serial monogamy. So talk about how does what you're talking about with one flesh, how does that compare to the serial monogamy? Yeah, it certainly would be wrong to say that every serial monogamous relationship is completely bad. It's completely failing in, in uh, reflecting any aspect of the biblical ideal. There can be tremendous trust. There can be tremendous caring and, and interaction between two people in a serial monogamous relationship. That may or may not end. But what is lacking in the serial monogamy relationship is that commitment that Chris was just talking about, that commitment that, no, I'm not going to go looking for my soulmate beyond you. I'm with you for the long haul. I'm with you for better or for worse, as the, as the traditional vows say. So the big thing that's different is, is that commitment. And if, and if you don't have that deep, deep commitment one to the other, then you don't have this, 
this awareness that it's going to be through the entire life that I'm going to communicate my love. I'm going to communicate and I want to, I want to learn who you are throughout life so that even as we get to our last years, I'm still discovering who you are and you're still discovering who I am. And if you have that kind of commitment, the safety, the safety of that relationship allows both people to thrive in a way that I don't think serial monogamy enables. I love that, John, because you go into a marriage not only committed to the person they are today, but what you have to realize is you're committing to the person that they're going to be. And we change every day. If, if, if we have an interaction with somebody, we're different. If we get a job, we're different. If we have children, we're different. If we have experience, and so we're different. And that's what commitment is, is I'm committed to you today, just like I was for who you were yesterday and into the future, whoever you might be, because we all, we're all, we all change. And yet that commitment says, that's where we're going to stay together. Iron sharpening iron. And I'm committed to you. That's right. That's right. Now, when we start thinking about the um, purity culture, that was the third one. uh, There clearly is a commitment (laughs) to physical sexual purity. So again, that's wonderful. That's good. But where this option really does fail is the lack of emphasis on the personal, the lack of emphasis on what it means to actually grow together personally in all of the arenas of human life. And so that young people who end up getting married, having come out of that kind of culture, oftentimes are just shocked by the fact that sex isn't the best thing in the world. And we really don't know each other very well. And there's, there's a, there's a lot of these relationships that really struggle and in some cases even end because they've not been prepared during the premarital time. Yeah, John, what, just as a quick aside, what's a good word? I mean, I love your word personal and psychology. I think we've, you know, some people have landed on the word soul and, and not the, you know, kind of spiritual way, but uh, who it encompasses who we are, all of us, our, our whole being, our mind, our heart, right? Our emotions, our thoughts. And, th- and that, so when you use, I just want to clarify, you said this already, but just for listeners, we, it, some people might translate that when you say the personal, it, it really is that whole being, that soul that we are inside. And the New Testament, I mean, I don't think, is that the right word, soul, or, or is there even a good word, the spirit? Is is that a whole new controversy? Uh, yeah, different scholars will argue different, different things. But yeah, when I say personal, I mean the intellectual, I mean the emotional, I mean the spiritual. I think you could even throw in recreational, yeah. you know, the, the, yeah. the humor part. The, yeah. All of those non-physical dimensions of who we are, yeah. that's what I mean by personal. And I don't know if that's the best word, but... No, it's a good word. I love it. Yeah. Okay. So uh, go ahead now that we've looked at the how... This applies to the hookup culture, the serial monogamy, the the abstinence uh, or slash purity culture. So let's really dig down deep into that very God perspective, biblical perspective of what God really meant for this to be like. Can you just really start unpacking that for us? Okay, well, we should probably start in Genesis in terms of um, uh, the the statement regarding God's creation. 
So let me just read uh, a verse here. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. That's Genesis 1, 27 to 28. So clearly you're seeing both men and women are equally bearers of the image of God. And it does include childbearing, which takes both, but it also extends to the stewardship of the earth so that this goes way beyond sexuality. This, this, this is now a co-reigning in the earth where men and women together are to, are to image God in the stewarding of this, of this creation. So it is a, an all-encompassing uh, relationship that is way beyond sexuality. You also have the permanence of the relationship. And for this, we can go into Genesis 2, where it talks about uh, God creating the male and female. And he says that they will become one flesh, that the man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And Jesus picks that up in Matthew, as you, as you know, so that there is this, this co-reigning, this, this co-displaying of God's image, but it's also this intimate relationship that is going to be permanent that in so many different ways uh, brings the two together in a, in a unity that you could even say they're, they're one flesh. So what does that look like then? Let me then go back to this notion of, uh, of, of being created in the image of God. If it is true that we bear his image and we are then interacting with each other as, in a sense, living parables of who he is, then you can start looking at the kinds of things that are said between about the Father and the Son and about the Father and the Spirit and about the Spirit and the Son. And you see, oh, that's actually how we are to be living. So the whole notion of, of interpersonal love, interpersonal knowledge, well, those verses are actually stated in Scripture about the Godhead. Things about uh, mutual sacrificial love. Obviously, the Son demonstrates this in a way that's, that's, that's eternal and infinite. But that is also going to then be true of my relationship with my wife. Mutual kindness then is implied by all of this. And of course, then, that in, involves no violence. <laughs> that involves um, a, a, an encouraging relationship that fosters all of these things. And of course, this mutual commitment, mutual service, mutual forgiveness, and then faithfulness for life. All of these things then are reflective of the divine relationships that go on for eternity in, in the Godhead. This is why when we think back to the, to the Enlightenment, where this world had become disenchanted, where all of the physical was disconnected from anything higher, that was devastating to who we are as humans. But when you start thinking about humans bearing the image of God, then all of our relationships become very parabolic. And then not only do we display who God is, but, but who he is then begins to dictate how we are to interact with each other. I hear you talk, and I just think I did such a good job in training you, uh, John, and I'm just... I owe it all to you. I, I do, and, and when... You know what? I'll, I'll tell you what. I, I know I should be first author on the book, but if you... You know what? In academia, sometimes the second author is as much as the first one. John, and the Lundy Grace thought uh, hypothesis then, an idea that you're expounding on, <laughs> it is... 
there's something deep there, Elise. I mean, it, it, it's like, I wish people could hear this. I think people out there listening to this, whether they're single, dating, engaged, uh, newly married, I don't think they hear this enough. I, I, don't, I don't know if they, or if they do, they don't grasp it. Because you know what you're saying could be a little bit slippery if you don't pay attention. And that's the point, right? It's there's something profound about this that's so simple. Well, I mean, what you're talking about, John, the way you're describing it, I mean, listen to this. You're talking about that this, this kind of relationship is interpersonal love and knowledge, a deep awareness and acceptance of each other. It's, you talked about mutual kindness and sacrificial love. You talked about no violence, no relationally angry words, right? There's consistent encouragement. There's commitment, mutual service, mutual forgiveness, lifelong faithfulness. I mean, who wouldn't want this? Who wouldn't want this? I think anybody in their right mind would want this. So what that tells me is that they don't really understand what marriage was meant to be. That's right. That's right. And, and, and there's this assumption based basically on this notion of the soulmate, that it's going to just happen automatically, that, that they're going to find the right person. It's going to be a seamless connection and everything's going to just develop beautifully. But I always try to tell students that we are declared one flesh at the altar, but we become one flesh through life. Mm. And that really, that, that notion takes it way beyond the med- wedding night. So what do you mean by that? How do you become? Or are you always flesh? in the process of becoming? You're always in the process. I mean, uh, what, what my wife and I are experiencing now is, is really the maturing of the one flesh union that I didn't think would ever be possible. I had these ideals when I was, you know, my early 20s before I got married, but I never thought they would happen because I didn't see it. I didn't see it in the relationships around me. But I am experiencing it now. And it really is, it's not rocket science, but it is living what I call covenantally. So that if you understand how to live covenantally, Let's uh, tell us that word. I, it's a wonderful word. Yeah. It, it, right it means, a, first of all, eighth it, year and that second year, kid, oh, kid. she was a piece of work. I mean, I, I know she's probably listening, but holy cow, she was hard. But the marriage starts, and I'm thinking becoming what? Becoming, uh, you know, not in the same conversation, not, not hearing each other in pain. It's hard to become, but there's something that I knew, and I know you knew this too, and something Elisa knew, and that is there was a commitment to each other. There was trust and trustworthiness. We were in the process of becoming, and it wasn't easy. But that word covenant meant something. And, and tell us, tell listeners, what what does it mean, John? I mean, I know you know a lot about this because I, I I taught you it. So tell us what you learned at my at my feet. Well, I'm so grateful you're here. So that if I step out of line, you can, <laughs> you can, you can correct me. Oh, trust me, I will. I can change I know your you will. <laughs> Most people, when they think about covenant, and 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 everyone talks about marriage as a covenant, and it's appropriately called that. 
But most people think of covenant as really so- solemn promises. That's why we call them the vows. But that's, that's it's really what most people think it is. It's a really important commitment. And it is. It's not, I'm not denying that. But I've spent much of my life uh, studying uh, Scripture and trying to figure out how the covenants actually work in Scripture. And I want to simplify this at this point. I mean, I, uh, the book I wrote on, on discipleship unpacks it more. Mm. But basically, every covenant you find in Scripture is grounded in prior grace. God is always first. He's always the one who initiates. He's always the one who promises. He always is the one who who supplies. He's always the one who redeems. He's always first. So covenants are grounded in grace. But when covenant partners receive that grace, they are always covenantally obligated to respond with faithfulness to the covenant-making God. That's not legalism. That's covenant. I've received God's grace, and now because I'm in a covenant with him, I am now to respond to who he is and to his character and reflect that. That's covenant. So if you then apply that to marriage, the way to live covenantally, to get back to your question, is to learn how to live daily in the prior, sustaining, redeeming, empowering grace of God. So that daily I am inclined, not only to God, but to my spouse. Not only to my my moral obligations as a Christian or whatever you want to say, but also in my responsibilities as a man. So when I think about receiving grace, I'm, as a Christian, going to be receiving it in multiple ways. But certainly, I'm going to be receiving it through the Word. I'm going to be receiving it through the promises of God. But I'm also going to be receiving it through my wife. And so I need to start paying attention to what I'm receiving through my wife on a daily basis and receiving it as grace. Because if I actually receive it as grace as opposed to taking it for granted, that grace will incline me to respond with faithfulness to her. I think that's so amazing. And and, and it tells me, be careful who you marry. Uh, John, you and I married the two most amazing, graceful women in the world. I know you took second in this because I married the best. But Pam is, you know, she's good. But she's not, you know, she's she's great. But, but to live with a grace-filled wife, to live with a husband that says, I'm committed to you, I, 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 I look for you, I honor my vows to you. There's nothing better. But because they honor their vow to God, they, they're committed to him first. They, they recognize grace they've received from him. And it is through them that they apply that grace to their partner. And it's via them oftentimes that the other person can best see God is when they're treated through them. And and that just goes to show how powerfully important choosing a partner is whose first commitment in love is to God and recognition of his grace. And then through this idea of covenant, having that flow through them to each other. Right. I mean, this is is not to say that non-Christians can't have good marriages. They can. They're, they're, they're stamped with the image of God. They have the characteristics of, of kindness and justice and mercy. So you can see that sort of thing happening without being Christians. 
But when you have relationship with God, now you have not just human grace, you actually have divine grace. So when we start thinking about the kind of qualities that you just mentioned, Chris, we start thinking about the fruit of the Spirit. So that if both spouses are actually living in relationship to God, in a covenantal relationship of receiving grace and responding, the Spirit is actually shaping their character. And so the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, whatever, those characteristics then are shaping the individual. And if both people in the marriage relationship are taking on those characteristics, then that natural flow of those characteristics from God are flowing through each other to the other. And as a result, you're experiencing divine grace through your spouse. That divine grace, you're experiencing that deepening sense of commitment and trust and trustworthiness that you talked about at the beginning, right? And what's the result of that? Is that you have a deepening sense of safety that where someone is consistently kind. They are consistently forgiving. I am consistently loving Chris in a self-sacrificial way. Yeah, see, this is, this is why, I, you know, it's, it's so important for young couples especially to recognize how important it is to walk carefully with each other so that they learn how to argue in a way that isn't wounding. Because you can destroy the kind of trust in a moment, you know, when, when, when the words and, the, and, and, and God anger forbid, and... anger and even physical uh, uh, interactions, that can destroy all of what you just described. But if you live together this way for year after year after year, decade after decade, you rear children if they come along, you weather physical issues that you've had to deal with, financial issues larger family issues together, the loss of parents, the loss of, and you actually live that way with each other, the kind of trust that you're referring to, Elisa, it deepens in a way that you didn't even realize was happening. So now my wife and I are, are empty nesters now. Our boys are now on their own. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. We missed them for about three days. But what's happened is that as now we're living in this stage of our life, now just mainly relationship between ourselves, we have found, again, not only that we love each other, but that we trust each other in a way that we never knew before. Because that person has been there through all of it and has demonstrated the kind of trustworthiness you were talking about. So now that commitment that we made at the altar has been absolutely demonstrated. And we are now abandoning ourselves to each other in a love that I never knew was possible because we feel safe with each other like we never did before. So John, let's go let's let's bring it home now. We're talking about how how this how do we navigate this kind of sexual intimacy given the perspective of the one flesh union, that commitment, the trust, the trustworthiness, that one flesh that's now emerged. Yeah, and I and I think John you've used the word gift in a lot of this, which is just I, it's my favorite word of all time, but if, if I, there was one author who wrote a book, he said this, if, if I could give one word and just take it with me to eternity, and, and that's the one word I can hold on to, he says, it'd be the word give. Now, and, 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 and I think he was thinking the idea of a gift. There's something there, I think you're 
Is that right? Yeah, I think if you go back even to when God brought Eve to Adam, he gave her to him. It was a gift. Uh, and, and obviously, we're not just talking about sexuality there. It was the whole person. But when you think about sexuality, then you must, we must always look at sexuality as a gift to be given and a gift to be received. Our culture, obviously, as we've been talking about, have, has, has destroyed that sort of thing. It's something to take. It's something just simply for my pleasure or whatever, at least in its, in its worst form. But if you then put sexuality into the context of the covenant, then you're always understanding that the, the gift of my wife's sexuality to me is something that only she can give to me. I can't take it. And I must receive it as a covenantal gift. Now, if I'm receiving it, then I must receive it appropriately. And that means it, it summons me to respond to her gift, her grace, with faithfulness, with commitment. And if you, and, and if you actually enter into sexuality that way, it's, it's a constant giving and receiving from both spouses to the other. And then sexuality starts mirroring the larger relationship. Lisa, I think you said it right, that uh, society has this so backwards that it is, as John said, a taking. It's a, what can I get? Not what can I give to someone as far as, you know, the ultimate of a gift. And I think that's, that's just a powerful way of looking at this, John. So Yeah, I think what's... What's really robust about this viewpoint that, that you're extolling, John, is it really, it, it so expands the idea of what is meant by, air quotes here, one flesh. And that really that one flesh takes place in that deeply personal aspect before it takes place in the physical aspect. That's right. Um, I like to use the word epitome to describe what sex does in a marriage. Epitome is the concentrated example. It's the summary of something, right? So I didn't understand this when I got married. Like, like, like ours is the epitome of marriage, Elise and I. Yours is like second. Or, exactly. Or like you're the epitome of NI of professors. I mean, if, if you looked up definition of professors, you're going to see us right there and it'll, it'll be us. As the epitome, exactly. Okay, the best. Like we have the most Yelp reviews, right? I mean, I'm... the epitome of humility, <laughs> right there is Chris. It is right. That's a that's a great example <laughs> I, of, of, of truth speaking too. Okay, so when I first got married, you know, my wife and I, thankfully by the grace of God, we were virgins when we got married. But for me, it was okay. I'm married now. I can have sex, and it was it was sort of just the the physical freedom that two people have when they get married. I didn't understand this deep communication of all of the personal through the physical that we've been talking about here. But Elisa, as you said, if, if two people are, are growing together intellectually so that you actually sit down and have conversations about significant things, it doesn't necessarily have to be biblical. It could be political. It could be having to do with the environment. It could be having to do with what they're learning in their profession but they're having very substantive uh, conversations about whatever, you're, you're knowing the other person. You're, you're appreciating their way of thinking, and you're becoming one. 
when you have emotional things, where, whether it's highs or lows, and you, and you come together and you share these things, you are, you are knowing each other emotionally, and you're becoming one there. You're becoming trustworthy there. Uh, spiritually, I mean, uh, as my wife uh, spends uh, her mornings oftentimes in the Word, and she just shares with me what she's getting out of the Word. I'm just listening to her heart. I'm listening to her spirit, and we're becoming one flesh in all these ways. So if all of that's happening uh, outside of the bedroom, and then I come into the bedroom with my wife, now it makes sense. Now what we're doing is, is in a physical way, in the most intimate physical way all uh, of all, all of this stuff that's been going on everywhere else in our relationship is now epitomized in the sex act, where now physically we're becoming one, and that's matching what's happening in all these other dimensions of our lives. Now, all of a sudden, sexuality makes a whole lot of sense. Now, it's teaching me that life is multidimensional, and I get this remarkable freedom to be intimate physically with my wife, where this is all finally culminating. Now, mm. it makes sense. Mm. You know, we have, at least I think, so much of this um, it makes so much sense and has been so profound. Uh, Very profound. Know, let, what would you give? How would you summarize this for our listeners now? What's, what's the important points, you know, that you would say, based upon this? Here's how to live based upon this. Here's what to pray for based upon this. Here is your purpose. Here is your goal. You know, that, that idea of contentment, but the idea of commitment, the idea of compassion and passion, the idea of purpose and meaning. What is it? What do we aim for based upon this biblical world, this biblical idea of sexuality and of marriage? and intimacy. It's that integration. It's that idea of who we are. Uh, John, what, 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 where does all of this lead to? If you had to tell that lady at Jarrett's, what does it mean? Well, what am I aiming for? I think the most important thing to really become convinced of is that we don't have enough. We don't have it in ourselves to have a good relationship. We don't have our, it within ourselves to be faithful in all the ways we need to be faithful and to be forgiving and to be compassionate and everything else. We just don't have enough. And once you realize that you enough, uh, you know, moral uh, fiber, grit, grit, energy. commitment, I can't, I can't bring all that I am to bear to do this without, we're just not going to do it. Okay. We're just not going to do it. And so that's why so many marriages fail because they're trying to do it in their own strength. Covenantal living tells me that God knows we're weak. God knows that we don't have what, what is needed. We have a, a, a traitor in our hearts. We have a narcissist in our hearts. We have a, a bitter person in our hearts, an unforgiving person. So if things don't go my way, I'm going to, whatever. The most important thing is to be convinced that I don't have what it takes. So that means that I'm going to have to receive grace. I'm going to have to receive grace every single day of my life if I'm going to become a person in whom the image of God is becoming more and more clear. And if I'm actually going to live in a covenantal relationship with my spouse, 
I'm going to have to learn how to receive grace every day. Because grace doesn't just motivate. I hear that all the time. That's the motivation. No. Grace does way more than motivate. Grace enables. Grace empowers. Grace inclines. And so what is it that's going to make me serve my wife when I just want to watch football? What is, what, is, what is it going to take to make me get up and do the dishes or the laundry or walk the, the, the baby or, or clean up the vomit of the, of the son or daughter that left? What is it going to take for me to actually love my wife the way Christ loved the church? It's not going to come from just my own strength. It's going to have to be that the grace of God is increasingly precious to me. The grace of God is increasingly capturing my heart and inclining me toward my wife. And that means then that it's not just through Ephesians and Romans and Matthew. It's also going to be through my wife. So that I, I develop a way of looking at my wife where I pay attention. I mean, it's, it's dawning on me now that I'm in my, we're, we're in the middle of our 40th year of marriage. That my wife has linked her life to me and has gone with me wherever the Lord has led us. So that her, her presence with me is grace. And, and when I think about her creativity, her humor, her, her servant-heartedness, her whatever, to be able to identify those things and receive them as grace. Well, if I've received them as grace, no longer am I taking her for granted. And that grace inevitably is going to incline my heart. It's going to move my heart. It's going to enable my heart to respond. And then to recognize covenantally, if I'm receiving grace... I need to respond in kind. And so that commitment, that, 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 the, the kind of trustworthiness. So I cannot receive her sexuality or her presence without now recognizing, oh, it's also summoning me to respond in kind and faithfulness. But now I'm not alone. It's, it's, it's the kind of relationship that God has with me and the kind of relationship I have with my wife that is actually empowering the whole thing. I don't know if we can end in any other better. Drop the mic. Drop the mic, which is... We can't add to that. John, that's beautiful. I just, I think one of the things that I, that I just love about this is that when when you give this lecture in class, it's just like you see this look come on this, the faces of our students where they're when they capture that vision, they actually see you and Pam together up there as a couple as the epitome of what you're talking about besides Chris and me as the epitome. But they're watching you guys, and they have that, that thought of, that's what I want. I have not seen it. Some of them have not seen it at home. Some have, but not many have seen it at home. They've, they're certainly not seeing it in our culture, but they're seeing it lived out in, in person right in front of them. When they watch the way you two interact together, they listen to the way you talk about each other. They watch you outside of class, the way uh, you are with each other, where you are the epitome. And I think the beauty of this class is that it gives our young people hope. It gives them hope. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him until you are overflowing with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit.
Amen. 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 Thank you for joining us on this Art of Relationships podcast with Dr. John Lundy, who will um, be able to read more about this, hopefully in the near future. And we'll let you know when his book comes out. Uh, It's going to be amazing, the idea of covenantal love and uh, how we deal with uh, marriages and sexuality. Yeah. So thanks so much for joining us on this part two of the uh, the Art of Relationships. And we are so glad that you joined us. We hope that uh, you'll be back for the next one. But I'm Elisa Grace, joined with my beautiful husband. The epitome of Chris. Uh, Yeah, Chris, thanks. Yeah, Lisa, it's awesome. Just I I feel loved right now. I think you're going to nickname me Epitome. I don't know. Yeah. uh, uh, Your new nickname, The Epitome, like The Weekend, right? The answer. The answer, yeah. The Epitome. I'm The Epitome. Well, good to see y'all. Thanks. See you next time. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to The Art of Relationships. This podcast is only made possible through generous donations from listeners just like you. If you like it and want to help keep the podcast going, visit our website at cmr.biola.com. Dot edu and make a donation today.